This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Pluto Press, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Let Them Eat Crypto, The Blockchain Scam That's Ruining the World by Peter Housen. The subject of immense hype, hope, and confusion, cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology promised to revolutionize every industry. In this shocking expose, Peter Housen reveals the huge social, political, and environmental costs of cryptocurrencies. Housen tells an alarming story of how right-wing libertarian crypto entrepreneurs, often aided by charities, politicians, and philanthropists, exploit conditions of poverty, oppression, corruption, and conflict. Their goal? A new frontier of crypto-colonial extractivism. Let Them Eat Crypto reveals the alarming truth. Blockchain offers only false solutions, surveillance, and high-tech snake oil. Let Them Eat Crypto by Peter Housen. Out now from Pluto Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second of my two-part interview with Shaul Magid on the long history of Jewish Zionism and its antagonist, Jewish anti-Zionism. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend you do so before listening to this. Before we get started, you listen to The Dig because we aim to provide the best political education possible on the most important subjects. I am incredibly gratified extremely grateful that so many of you, many of you who are talented organizers doing important work all over the world, that so many of you depend on the dig to help sharpen your analysis. Please know, though, that we likewise depend on you. We are overwhelmingly a listener-supported podcast, supported by listeners who contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. That's how we can afford to put this podcast out every week, free with no paywall. That's important to us because we want the maximum number of people to listen to every interview, regardless of your ability to pay. That means that if you can afford to contribute, we need you to do so. Also, we have tote bags, coffee mugs, a book or books to send you in the mail, depending on the size of your donation and where you live. No matter where you live and no matter how much you donate, all contributors get our excellent newsletter delivered free to your email inbox. Please contribute. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. There's a link in the show notes. Click it now. Support the dig. Oh, and if these episodes are helping you make peace with breaking with liberal Zionism, I know some of you are out there listening right now, and you're looking to join up with anti-Zionist Jewish comrades. I've included a link to Jewish Voice for Peace in the show notes. Join up now. Okay, here's Shaul Magid, a professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College and visiting professor of modern Judaism at Harvard University, where he's a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of World Religions. He's also the rabbi of the Fire Island Synagogue in Seaview, New York. His latest book is The Necessity of Exile, Essays from a Distance. This is the second of my two-part interview. Shaul Magid, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you. 
I want to start by stepping back and reviewing what we discussed in the first part of the interview and its import, because we're about to get to this pivotal moment, which is the foundation of the state of Israel and the Palestinian Nakba. How did Zionism change over this longer arc that we've discussed so far from from the late Ottoman period through the British mandate, from the 19th century, say, until the eve of war in 1947, as as the Jewish population in Palestine swelled from from a small minority of tens of thousands to many hundreds of thousands. What what changed as Zionism went from an idea to waves of European settlement, land acquisition, economic development, and then onto more organized, armed, militant, and terrorist organizations? In other words, and I know this is a big question, how did the the concrete reality of the Zionist project becoming an organized and powerful political force seeking to achieve its aims of making a Jewish state on the ground in Palestine. How how did that shape Zionism as an ideology and a politics? Well, I think a few things happened uh, that, that are worth noting. First of all, as we talked about last time, Zionism was in the early period from the 1890s, let's say, even late 1880s until the 1930s, one idea among a variety of ideas to address the Jewish question that emerged in light of the emancipation of Jews from Europe over a 50-year period of time earlier in the 19th century, and then the rising anti-Semitism in the pogroms that began in the 1880s. And so it was basically on a kind of comp- in a competitive market of ideas that sought to address this particular kind of issue. That's number one. And As I think we mentioned last time, the shift from Zionism to being one in a market of ideas to Zionism becoming almost a necessity once you have the emergence of, of Nazism, once you have Hitler coming to power in 1933, and then subsequent to that 1935, 1938, when Europe really started to collapse until the start of the Second World War. That's, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing I would say is that the concept of a state was not really the dominant force behind the Zionist idea. I mean, most of the Zionists before the 30s were not necessarily statist. You know, the, the idea of Zionism was either creating some kind of autonomous enclave in Palestine or the creation of modern Jewish culture and the you know, the development of the modern Hebrew language and all of these kinds of things. So it was a really multifaceted, it's a really multifaceted ideology. What happens, and this is largely the consequence of Ben-Gurion, once Europe became an emergency situation for Jews, the concept of a state became the centerpiece of the Zionist project. And a lot of the, the Zionists who were not necessarily statists began to coalesce around the concept of a state, which, of course, at that time was still quite novel, the idea of creating a state from nothing. is just something that was not very, as I said before, not very practical. And I think that it was it's the combination of the coalescence of Zionism into a statist project, the emergency situation in Europe that really kind of brought us to the war, um, you know, 1939, 1945, and then 
the the empathy of sympathy empathy of the world toward the the uh, toward what happened with the Jews as a result of the war once that became clear really pushed this idea of a state into reality and as i said before it was really a win-win situation because after 1945 the world was dealing with a tremendous refugee problem of hundreds of thousands even more uh, Jews who were displaced people who were living in DP camps and by for the most part you know European countries in the United States really weren't interested in taking these like highly traumatized refugees so it kind of made sense from the, on the world stage to create some kind of a place for the Jews to go and of course the status Zionists really took that opportunity and they went with it and and you know, we moved into that period of time. But I think it's really important to note, and this is something that Dmitry Shumsky in his book Beyond the Nation State talks about, that even, even some of the Zionists that were very, very interested in the creation of a Jewish state by the 1930s and 1940s, that they were not really that statist in the teens and the 20s of the 20th century. We just discussed how Zionism changed as it went from being an idea to a powerful settler colonial project on the ground throughout the British mandate, particularly in the wake of the Nazi Holocaust, which, of course, as listeners know, killed six million European Jews. How then did the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 on territory comprising 78% of historic Palestine through the UN partition vote and then prolonged war and then the mass expulsion of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. How did this violent, very real world realization of political Zionism's, of Ben-Gurion in particular's ambition of a Jewish state, how did that remake Zionism as an ideology and a politics? The first thing to say is uh, a myth that's worth dispelling, at least partially, is that the partition plan was uh, proposed by the United Nations and the Arab countries rejected it and Israel accepted it. I mean, that is true. That is a fact, except that it was very, very contentious within the Zionist communities about whether to accept partition or not. And even Ben-Gurion was somewhat ambivalent about it. And there were certainly more right-wing reactionary Zionist thinkers and leaders that were dead set against partition. And they wanted the entirety of the historic land of Israel. They didn't want the 78%. Ben-Gurion ultimately was able to convince them to kind of talk them down by saying that, you know, partition is the best we're going to get. And he had in a famous speech said, we will accept partition for now. And so I think that that's important. It's important to note. I think we have to also remember that for the Arab countries, they didn't accept partition because they felt that they had the power and the numbers to basically prevent Israel from becoming a state. So they had nothing invested in accepting partition. In other words, they had everything, everything to lose and nothing to gain. And the, and, and the Israelis or the Zionists had everything to gain and nothing to lose. So it was a situation where one side accepted partition and one side didn't, but we have to realize the context of each one of those positions and the fact that the Arab countries incorrectly thought that they would be able to go to war against this nascent state and really defeat it very quickly. That obviously didn't happen. So once the war happens and once Israel is able to succeed, to its own surprise to some extent, 
the, the very notion of a state became a reality and the kind of infrastructure and the institutions of the state started to take form. And in a certain sense, they had another problem that they had to deal with, which was what are we going to do with all of these these Arabs that are now living, they call them Arabs, or Palestinians that were living within the Jewish state. Now, many of those Palestinians who were living in Mandate Palestine and then Israel in 1948 were dispossessed of land, were displaced. In fact, I think we might have mentioned this, 75% of people living in Gaza now are either refugees or children or children or grandchildren of refugees of people from 48. And there's some kind of irony here that Israel comes into existence to solve a refugee problem on some level. And in doing so, it creates a refugee problem. And there was a big debate in 48 and 49 about whether to let many of those refugees from the 48 war back to their villages and towns in Israel, Ben-Gurion was dead set against it. He wanted the fewest Arabs possible within the Jewish state. Other people like, like Martin Buber argued vociferously with Ben-Gurion that you have to let these refugees back. We were just refugees a few years ago. You have to allow these people, or at least some number of them, without upsetting the majority. You have to at least sub- let some of them return. And Ben-Gurion said no. And I think that was a that was a, a tragic mistake that I think Israel in some way is, is still living uh, in the aftermath of. Soviet support for the partition of Palestine in 1947 was profoundly consequential and in a lot of different ways. For, for one, in terms of Arab politics, it really undermined the credibility of communist parties across the Arab world. And it also, in the United States, thanks to the top-down nature of the Comintern, it forced Jews in the Communist Party USA to very suddenly change their line and drop their opposition to Zionism, though many Jews in Trotskyist organizations like the Socialist Workers' Party, they, they remained anti-Zionist. How consequential was this shift in Soviet policy for Zionism's trajectory among Jews, given how many Jews were communist and how Jewish American communism was. Is there perhaps a counterfactual reality where Stalin instead, for whatever reason, opposes partition and anti-Zionism remains a much stronger force among among American Jews for far longer? That's a great question. I don't know if I'm really kind of equipped to, to offer a really good answer. I, I do think that Ben-Gurion, for example, in the 30s and even in the early 40s, was seriously contemplating tying the nascent Israeli state to the Soviet Union. And it was Chaim Weizmann who kind of convinced him that Great Britain and the United States was really the place to go. So in 42, at the Biltmore, he convinced, Weizmann convinced Ben-Gurion to go. Ben-Gurion wasn't convinced that America was the future. I think, thankfully for Weizmann, uh, Ben-Gurion ended up going and, and what happened at Bill was important. You know, it, the, communist, the Communist Party and the communists in Israel, and, and as you said, some of the Jewish communists in the U.S. really were very in favor of, of the Soviet Union support. Obviously, it changes with Stalin and most of the Israeli communists that separate themselves from the party do so after Stalin. 
and after the purges. But it's that's really a story that that probably Ben Balthazar is more equipped to tell. Israel's spectacular victory in 1967's Six-Day War transformed Zionism within Israel and beyond, including including very much in the United States. Let's start with what happened in Israel. How did the 67 war, just the incredible swiftness of the victory and the extensive occupation of new land that it led to, how did that all spur a process of transforming what had been an overwhelmingly secular project into a religious, divinely sanctified and messianic one? And what were the what were the consequences of that transformation? Well, '67 obviously was a was a watershed moment for a lot of reasons. Not only because of the swiftness of the victory, but also because of the fear in Israel of what they you know, were calling a second Holocaust, and all of these stories of like the Israelis like digging these mass graves because they thought you know tens of thousands of, of Israelis were going to be killed. I think a good, an interesting way to see it is that uh, Tzvi Yehuda Cook, the son of Abraham Isaac Cook, who became the kind of patriarch of this nascent settler movement, gave a speech on Yom Ha'atzma'ut, May of 1967, literally three weeks before the Six-Day War. And he talked about how after 1948, after the establishment of the state in 1948, he wasn't able to celebrate Yom Ha'atzmaut. He wasn't able to celebrate Israeli Independence Day. And in a very impassioned speech, like he's talked about, you know, where about, what about Joseph's grave? And what about Rachel's graves? And he kind of went and, and talked about all these kind of like uh, religious historical landmarks. And they're not part of our, they're not part of us, they're part of Jordan. So how can I actually celebrate the establishment of a Jewish state when all of these holy sites are gone. Three weeks later, all of those holy sites became under Israeli sovereignty. And that speech was considered to be a kind of moment of modern day prophecy for the settler movement. That in a sense, what, what Tzvi Yehuda Cook was saying was, unless we have those religious landmarks the messianic project of Zionism is, in a certain sense, in neutral. And suddenly it gets thrust into fourth gear. And after that, he not only becomes the leader of that movement, but there begins a project of trying to make sure that Israel was not going to relinquish those territories, which most in Israel thought would happen except for a few people high up in the government, most of the government figured, okay, we occupied these territories in 67. We're going to make some kind of a deal. We're going to give the land back. We're going to make a peace treaty with Egypt or a peace treaty with Jordan. And the settlers saw this as a prophetic moment and began to try to do everything in their power to make sure that those lands were not given back. What the settlers did not really take into consideration, I shouldn't say settlers because they weren't really settlers at that point. Certainly what the followers of, of Rev. Cook did not take into consideration, or maybe they did and they didn't care, were the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees who were living in refugee camps from 1948 that suddenly Israel took possession of. This was, in a certain sense, 
one of the reasons why most of the Israel, people in the Israeli government says, well, we can't keep this territory because the, it, there are all these people here. And if we integrate them into Israel as citizens, we lose our majority, our Jewish majority. So it was all, everything kind of moved into a holding pattern. And it's this holding pattern that began in 67 and continued until 77 for the most part, where everything seemed to go off the rails because the government was not going to relinquish those territories without a peace treaty from Jordan and Egypt. Jordan and Egypt weren't really interested in a peace treaty. Jordan didn't want that territory back. Certainly, they didn't want it back to the extent that they were willing to give up something of their own. Same with Egypt, in large part because you have this massive, impoverished population who were living there. The settlers, however, had a very different agenda. They were not in a holding pattern. They saw this as an opportunity to begin to settle in these territories. And the government kind of allowed them to do it, thinking in part that it wasn't going to be a big deal. They're not going to really stay. I mean, there's the famous case of the Sebastia train station near Ramallah, where Jews on Hanukkah went and kind of camped out in this abandoned train station, and they were visited by people like a young Shimon Peres. And the basic attitude was, let these people stay. It's going to get cold. It's going to get rainy. They're not going to really remain there. So this was this was this kind of really tragic error on Israel's part of, in a certain sense, inaction when a segment of the society was building an entire ideology that was founded on that, on their, on, not on their inaction, but on the inaction of the government. And what ends up happening is that those, you know, people in the Sebastia train station becomes Beit El and Ofran, these, now these giant cities. So... In a certain way, there was a shock on 67 where everybody kind of froze, except those that believed that this was really the beginning of the end time. And the country was transformed over the period of a few decades by that ideology until in 1977 with the, with the election of Menachem Begin and the Likud party where settlement becomes official government policy. In the U.S., what was the place of Zionism among American Jews between 48 and 67? And what changed so dramatically after Israel's dramatic victory? From 48 to 67, most American Jews are introduced to Israel. I mean, most American Jews knew almost nothing about Israel before the 1950s. And a whole generation of Jews were introduced to Israel by Otto Preminger's movie Exodus in 1961, which was a kind of film version of Leon Uris's book, kind of the grand narrative of Zionism. Most American Jews had never visited Israel. Most American Jews didn't really have any understanding about what Israel was. There was a sense of pride, the kibbutz movement. You know, Israel was a socialist society, a kind of third world socialist society. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, like, we would go around with like UNICEF boxes for trick-or-treat on Halloween. And then there were these, you know, the JNF boxes raising money for trees. So when, when I, I remember when I was a kid, like the only thing I knew about Israel that it, is that they needed trees because we were like collecting these money for trees. There were no trees there. 
So that's what Israel was for American Jews, really through the 1960s. Everything changes after 67. Norman Podharetz, who was then the editor of Commentary Magazine, makes this statement in an essay that he wrote, I think in 71, we are all Zionists now. That in a sense, the entire discourse of of, of non-Zionism or anti-Zionism and assimilationism and dual, dual allegiance and all of these things kind of gets swept away with the way in which 1967 was sold, and I don't say this in, in a negative way, was sold to American Jews as the great miracle. I think Poderitz said that, I think he said it after the Yom Kippur War. Oh, he said it after the Yom Kippur War, so that would be 74, right? Yeah. And the Yom Kippur War, since you bring that up, is also very important because from 1967 to 1973, the settler movement was actually quite small and there were few settlements that were set up. It's only in the, after the Yom Kippur War where the Gush Emunim or the Block of the Faithful emerges as a movement, as an organization, as a movement that then ultimately becomes part of the government in a number of different political parties. Interestingly, um, and this speaks to the American case as well. The same year, 1974, is the emergence of a group of young American Jews called Breira, or Alternative, which is one of the first organized Jewish groups opposed to the occupation. And the language is very interesting. From 1967 to the, to the Yom Kippur War, for the most part, the language that was used to describe the Yom Kippur War was one of liberation, the liberation of territory. It's really in the early 70s where it suddenly becomes about the occupation of a people. And that transition from liberation of territory to the occupation of a people is, is a really kind of important transition. So at the same time that Israel is developing a settlement organization that is hell-bent on maximizing citizens in the territories in order to solidify those liberated territories, American Jews, certain young American Jews began to say that there's something that is morally problematic in the occupation of this large population. But again, these are not the majority. The majority of Jews in America become introduced to Zionism after 67 and become sympathetic to the Zionist project. The AJC, the American Jewish Committee, which was a non-Zionist organization, the most powerful Jewish organization in America, suddenly becomes a Zionist organization. So you see that kind of shift. And then later on, when you get into the 80s, you have the emergence of APEC and all these other groups. And and groups like the American Council for, for Judaism, uh, reform movement affiliated or comes out of the reform movement and is anti-Zionist just begins to sort of fade away. Yes, it starts to become smaller and smaller, more and more irrelevant. The the reform movement, remember the reform movement, which is built out of the 1885 Pittsburgh platform that we are not a nation, we are a, a, a carriers of a religion that was decidedly anti-Zionist. The reform movement itself becomes Zionist and develops a little bit later. Arza, which is the kind of Zionist branch of the reform movement, the conservative movement, which was somewhat ambivalent about Zionism in the, in the 1960s. Interestingly, the chancellor of the seminary, Louis Finkelstein, who had a complicated relationship with Zionism, forbade the singing of Hatikva at rabbinical ordination in the 1960s. Not because he was anti-Zionist, but because 
his view was, we are ordaining American rabbis. This is about America. This is not about Israel. So it's a slow process. But by the 1970s, Zionism really is deeply rooted in the American Jewish consciousness. And I would say something else I think worth mentioning, that there is an educational program that is developed for the Hebrew schools of conservative and reform movement, certainly the conservative movement, which is founded on the principles of Zionism and the Holocaust, so that you're raising a whole generation of people to believe that Israel is the centerpiece of Jewish identity. And I can speak first person. I was, I was raised within that world where, you know, when I went to Hebrew school in a conservative synagogue in the early 1970s, that's what we were taught. And your, your parents' Hebrew school experience would have been entirely different. Well, my, my father was from Workman Circle, so he was a Bundist. So they didn't have any relationship to that. But yes, those that went to Talmud Torah, for example, they weren't called Hebrew schools then. Back, you know, in the 50s and 40s, it was called Talmud Torah. Right. They were not taught Zionism. They were taught Judaism. Benjamin Balthazar has, a, has another fascinating article, this one about the, the Jewish New Left and much of the white leadership of the American New Left or leadership of the white American New Left, however you want to phrase it, was indeed Jewish. And and it's about how they, by and large, embraced black radicals' third-worldist critique of Zionism in Israel. He writes, quote, Many of the Jews in SDS understood the victory of Israel against Arab states in 1967 less as a victory of Jews than as a defeat in the larger anti-imperialist struggle against Western capitalism. And he writes that this identification with third-worldist politics was a, was a politics of solidarity and also a means of defining Jewish identity against the conscription of Jews into suburban middle-class whiteness. He writes, quote, as a way to both distance themselves from normative liberal Jewish institutions and rebel against the racial conscription of Jews of European descent, Jews in SDS and other new left organizations embraced not only black power's call for organizational autonomy and public militancy, but their stance against Israel as well. There's been a, a resurgent interest in how, how the new left theorized whiteness, but I think much less of a recognition of how often Jewish activists were on the front lines of theorizing and resisting this conscription into whiteness. What was it about Jewish American life in the 1960s that made Jews such a substantial part of the white new left? And in what about that moment might have motivated such an urgent rediscovery of an anti-imperialist and simultaneously anti-racist way of doing Jewish politics? Right. I think, well... <sighs> On the one hand, you have, in 1962, with the Port Huron Statement, which is really the birth of the New Left, and the, the, the Jews that were a part of that statement and a part of the, the who, were, who were signatures on that statement and authors of that statement, and also um, people like Mark Rudd, who played a very important role in, in the SDS at Columbia. Although Mark Rudd, interestingly, gives a talk somewhere in New Mexico in the 1970s where reflecting on the SDS, he says, yeah, for me, it was all really about the Holocaust. The alienation from Jewishness, I think, was a little bit more complicated than normally thought. On some level, these new left people were anti-bourgeois, they were anti-capitalist, they saw their parents as upwardly mobile capitalist assimilationists. 
And they were, in a certain sense, becoming part of the radical left, which saw itself as dedicated to third worldism in all kinds of ways. And Israel was seen as being an arm of, of white colonialism and white imperialism or American imperialism. And the classic example is Noam Chomsky's first book in 1964, where he actually writes about that. I will say something else to just to, to add a caveat to what Ben is talking about, although I, I do agree with what he's saying, and that is the New Politics Conference that was in late August, early September of 1967, literally two months after the Six-Day War. And it was the basic kind of coming together of all of the factions of the New Left. Um, obviously, the Black Nationalist Coalition was part of it. And... The Black Nationalist Coalition had convinced the conference to add into the protocols of the conference opposition to what they called Zionist colonialist exploitation. This was, this was a response to 67, the war, but the war had only happened like two months ago. And there was a debate back and forth. Actually, Martin Luther King spoke at that conference and then said that had he known that that was going to be adopted, he wouldn't have spoken. That particular moment was the beginning of the alienation of many people from the new left to a different kind of position that moved closer to Zionism. And there are important figures that are still around, like Martin Peretz, for example, who was part of the new left. And co-wrote, co-wrote an article with Michael Waltzer in Ramparts magazine in July 1967, celebrating defending Israel, um, celebrating its victory in the Six-Day War, and the article was titled, Israel is not Vietnam. Right. So Michael Walter is another important piece here because he was also a new leftist, and he writes a very, very famous book, what became a very famous book called Just and Unjust Wars, that became a kind of like primer for political theory in the last part of the 20th century. And the reason that Walter wrote Just and Unjust Wars was to make a defensive case as to why he could be anti-Vietnam War, pro-67 war. Right? So in a certain sense, the 67 war and the ramping up of the anti-Vietnam movement put a lot of new left Jews into that situation. So Peretz, Walzer, and uh, Martin Jay, other people, Hillary Putnam, who were really very, very much a part of the new left, started to become alienated from it when suddenly, if you identified as being a Zionist, you were part of the imperial problem and not the radical solution. Arthur Waskow was another example. And so, you know, Waskow coins it in his book, The Bush's Burning in 1971, which is, has a chapter called um, From Jewish Radical to Radical Jew. And that kind of captures this transition of many of those new left Jews who started to look for their roots in Judaism and in Jewishness after they felt that the new left had abandoned them post-67. This divide that emerges among, among left-wing Jewish Americans with the Martin Peretz's and Michael Waltzer on Waltzers on one side and the Abby Hoffman's and Mark Rudd's on the other, this growing divide around Zionists in Israel was deeply enmeshed with divides that were opening up around the Jewish-American relationship to black Americans and black political struggle, particularly black power. Baltasar writes, 
quote, while it might seem shocking now, polling data in the late 1950s recorded a higher Jewish support for civil rights than for Zionism. For Jews, at least, liberal anti-racism was post-war Americanism. Why did American Jews have this particular investment in civil rights liberalism? And then how did the rise of black power and the new left, alongside everything going on with and vis-a-vis Israel, how did that lead to these emerging fractures that were simultaneously around black politics and Israel? Because as, as as you just got into in your last answer, different paths are taken by 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 different currents of the Jewish New Left, by by liberal American Jews, by the emerging Jewish neoconservative currents, people like Nathan Glazer and Norman Poderitz, by the Jewish Renewal Movement, also by far-right Jewish radicals that you've written about around Meyer Kahana and, and his Jewish Defense League, which I didn't realize this until until I read your work, but that they organized really around kind of anti-black sentiment during the New York teachers strike in their very early years. Why why is American Jewish politics cracking up in the way that it was at that moment around Zionism, imperialism, and black power? I think it also goes to the idea that that used to float around long before my time that um, that FDR was the first Jewish president. Right? The way in which the way in which Jewish socialism and Jewish Yiddishist culture gets transformed in an American twenty in the twentieth century in America by mid century into a form of liberalism, and that the idea of Judaism as ethical monotheism, that Judaism as about supporting and advocating for the oppressed, especially in America where Jews weren't the ones who were being oppressed, translated very easily into civil rights. And Jews took a very important role in civil rights, in the freedom rides in the early 1960s and before. As you move, interestingly, within the Jewish spectrum from the more liberal progressive to the more conservative orthodox, you see less and less of a support for civil rights. So that the official orthodox movement, the OU of orthodoxy, doesn't really officially support the civil rights until mid-1960s. It's pretty late, right? So they were very reticent about that. I'll say also that, you know, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who becomes the iconic figure in the Selma March in 1965, marching next to Abernathy and King, he also enters into the civil rights discussion quite late. Whereas you have people like Joachim Prince, who spoke in 1963, right before King's I Have a Dream speech, who was more interested in civil rights because of his experience in Nazi Germany. So there is the way in which that kind of translates from that period of oppression and persecution into the, the civil rights movement. And again, a lot of this is pivoting on something that we mentioned a little bit, but is, much, is, is very much a part of the conversation of late, and that is the question of whiteness, Jews and whiteness. And becoming American, became, it was part of becoming white. I think that a lot of Jews felt with the rise of the black nationalist movement, especially in 1965, 1966, after, after Malcolm X is assassinated in 19, 1965, and then the black power movement is inaugurated by Skokie Carmichael in 1966, a lot of Jews felt 
that they were being excised from the African-American movement. I mean, Jews like Kivy Kaplan were presidents of the NAACP. And to, you know, to some extent, uh, they were right that the black nationalist movement was a movement by blacks, about blacks, for blacks. And basically Carmichael in that famous speech in Greenwood, Mississippi says, here's the door. You're, not, you're no longer welcome. Thank you very much for your service. So there, was a, there were a lot of ways in which Jews felt very insulted and offended by black nationalism. And then, of course, black nationalism sees itself in a third worldist model where after 1967, Israel is considered to be the white branch of American imperialism that's, you know, oppressing the Palestinians. So there is that kind of shift and movement where Jewish liberalism is, is, is put to the test. And as I said, a lot of these new leftists, a lot of the Jewish, the Jews who became radicals, and we have to recognize like radicalism as a posture is really ultimately focused on anti-liberalism. It's not focused on anti-reactionary conservatism. It's really focused, it's a critique of liberalism. Because that's the dominant, that's the dominant force in American life at that point. Exactly, exactly. So there's that kind of shift from the liberal support of civil rights, the radical support of the third world, the radical support of people of color, and then this kind of bombshell of the emergence of black nationalism after the assassination of Malcolm X, and then the assassination of Martin Luther King, where suddenly Jews are marginalized because they're white. They're marginalized because they are really actually not on the side of justice and equality, but they are on the side of oppression. And then specifically, how is it in this moment that you have these more explicitly reactionary breaks from the liberal Jewish consensus, namely the neocons and JDL? Right. Well, it's really JDL first and then the neocons. So JDL, what, I mean, what Kahana did was actually quite brilliant because Kahana basically just translated radicalism into a reactionary register. And you could see that January 6th. I mean, the way in which radicalism, which was always seen to be a progressive critique of liberalism, becomes a reactionary critique of liberalism. And Kahana really went to war against American Jewish liberalism. That was really the enemy. He had a lot of admiration for Malcolm X and for the Black Panthers. He even has a chapter called The Jewish Panthers in his book, The Story of the Jewish Defense League. But of course, he felt like the blacks were all anti-Semitic. He just really, he's adopting a particular kind of tactic and ideology that was going to war against Jewish liberalism because Jewish liberalism was really another name for Jewish assimilationism. So the, the neocons, which really emerged from a, a, a group called the New York Intellectuals, or a group of people, Potharitz was part of it and, and others in, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, around Commentary Magazine and around some other you know, other places like that, they began a certain kind of, I would call, soft reactionism. They weren't radical. They didn't want, they weren't revolutionaries the way Kahana was, but they were adopting a certain kind of Jewish ethos, which was secular. They weren't religious either. A Jewish ethos that was secular, but was focused on questions of 
hyper-particularity and notions of capitalism and freedom as a way out of the Jewish liberal morass. So the neocons and Kahana were both basically trying to figure out a way to cut off the continuation of Jewish liberalism because they felt that it was dangerous for the Jews, either because on the Kahana side of anti-Semitism or on the neoconservative side because it was just going to lead to uh, assimilationism. And it's interesting because today we primarily think of neocons as the advocates of sort of imperial adventure and intervention, particularly in the Middle East. And they certainly have been that. But in their early years, they were more focused on sort of a critique of great society liberalism that was facilitated by a certain pathologization of the black situation in in the United States, at least implicitly, maybe explicitly, I'm not sure, contrasted against their own collective Jewish advancement. Right. Yeah. There's there's a new book by Sam Moyne called Liberalism Against Itself, which is a critique of Cold War liberalism. And he says that that it's the Cold War liberalism that eventually kind of corrodes liberalism from the inside such that it becomes weak and ineffective. And then you have all these different alternatives. Now, Kahana's alternative of reactionary or militant uh, anti-liberalism has a very short shelf life, in part because he comes a bit late to the party. The JDL is found in May 1968. And once you have the end of the Vietnam War, once you have the resignation of Nixon, that kind of radicalism begins to fade away. And when the radicalism in America fades away, the JDL starts to lose its raison d'etre to a certain extent. Now, of course, Kahan also moves to Israel in 1971, but neoconservatism, that's its moment. That's really when it begins to, to emerge and, co- and come to the fore. And it's interesting we're talking about this like a few days after Kissinger passes away, right? Because Kissinger was a, a very important part of that, where Jews are suddenly now moving from being lifelong card-carrying Democrats, whose parents were lifelong card-carrying socialists, to now being neo-Republicans. We've discussed all sorts of Zionism and anti-Zionism over a long period of time in Israel, in the U.S., elsewhere. But there's also a sort of non-Zionist diasporism that is perhaps best or at least for me most readily exemplified by by Philip Roth's novels, something more quietist, more quietist or even indifferent, apolitical than than anti-Zionism or, or a more kind of proactive, uh, assertive diasporism. What's the significance of, of this cultural current of non-Zionism, something that, that Ari Brostoff and others have written about? And how might it help us make sense of Jewish American politics and the place of Zionism within it? So I think that, that Roth is a great example. And Saul Bellow to some other, another, another example. But I think Roth is even a better example of a kind of 50s, 60s, early 70s Jewish Americanism that was um, focused on a sense of integration, but not assimilation. And maybe the great, the last 
great exemplar of Philip Roth's non-Zionist American Judaism is someone like Larry David, or at least the character of Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm, right? I mean, because it's interesting that Larry David, that Curb Your Enthusiasm is this really Jewish show, and Israel almost never comes up. I mean, there is the famous Palestinian chicken episode, which is a great episode, but, but generally speaking, it's just not part of that Los Angeles Jewish world. It doesn't really exist, it's not on the map, it doesn't matter, they're not against it. They just don't have any opinion about it. And I think that was a much more prominent thing in the 1960s when Roth was writing, because at that time, American Jews were mostly American born, was that first generation, the baby boomer generation, the first generation where the majority of American Jews were American born. So they're no longer immigrants. They're really American. And trying to then cultivate and figure out what that actually meant, at the same time, trying to cultivate some form of gastronomic Judaism or pediatric Judaism or some kind of Judaism that wasn't really a lot more than bagels and locks, which people make fun of. But from that, from their perspective, that was sufficient, right? They weren't going to, they weren't going to become Christians. They weren't going to convert to Christianity. Uh, they were going to be identified as Jews. Maybe they would get a nose job. Maybe they would get their hair straightened. Maybe they would get their hair colored, right? To, to pass a little bit more like Americans. But they still vacationed together. They went to summer camps together, right? They, they belonged to country clubs with other Jews and there's, they wanted to be among Jews. They just didn't really want the identity to move much beyond that. I don't really know now if that's possible. I, I think that one of the interesting things about the Zionization of American Judaism from the 70s onward is that it's almost impossible to have a Jewish identity today without having a position on Israel. It's kind of inserted itself so deeply into the American Jewish psyche that you can't have a Philip Roth character in a novel like, you know, I don't know, Eli the Fanatic or some of, or some of the other characters in his novels. I don't really think it's possible today. I don't think you can ignore Israel, which is for a lot of you know, pro-Israel Jews, that's part of the problem because you have all these groups that are like, if not now, or we stand together or not in my name or JVP. These are groups that are not ignoring Israel. Israel is the center of their Jewish identity, but it's the center of their identity as a critique. Yeah, let, let's turn to, to this new and very consequential Jewish anti-Zionism, which is, is above all else an anti-Zionism of young American Jewish leftists. And I think they're all sorts of different American Jews who've been been drawn to it. I think some were were brought up in a Jewish religious household and were bar mitzvahed and observant and all of that. Others, like my own partner, uh, you know, were culturally <laughs> Jewish or sort of New York Jewish, but not really connected to to Judaism in any sort of communal way. And there's a way in which, as you just mentioned, that it's become impossible to be Jewish and indifferent to Israel. Many date the emergence of this new current to Israel's 2014 war on Gaza, known as Operation Protective Edge. Why has it been the last decade in particular that's been such a consequential turning point for so many American Jews, particularly 
young American Jews. Why, in response to that moment and the moments that have passed since, have so many young American Jews begin to turn away from liberal Zionism towards a skepticism of Zionism or even a full-throated anti-Zionism in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle in a way that has really emerged as a seismic intergenerational conflict within the American Jewish community? I think there are probably a few reasons. I think number one, which is often not talked about enough, but I think is very important, is the internet and the access to information. And the fact that people that are now in their 20s grew up being able to look at Al Jazeera and The Guardian and The New York Times and Haaretz and Arut Sheva, which in other words, there's, there's an openness to information, there's an access to information where it's really difficult now for any community to curate a particular kind of narrative. So I think that that has to do with it. The other thing also has to do with the changing nature of Israel as a society. I mean, Israel in the over the last 15 or 20 years has been increasingly, has, is becoming an increasingly more right-wing society. And I think a lot of these young people who are now a part of these movements are growing up in the post-two-state solution myth let's say, that the very idea of a two-state solution, which was a liberal solution to the problem, has become unrealistic, has become fantastical, has become utopian. And in a sense, if you don't have a two-state solution, all you have is a one-state reality that just looks a lot like apartheid. So I think that the post-two-state reality, the access to information and also the fact that progressivism has taken a new turn in America. I'm not talking about Jews. I'm talking about American progressivism has taken a new turn in America. With Black Lives Matter, with the rise of Bernie Sanders and AOC and all of the people that kind of come in that wake, that there's really a resurgent sense of political radicalism that is really founded on certain principles of critical race theory, which is making the argument that America is a white supremacist society. And I think a lot of these young Jews who are now solidly white are recognizing that and recognizing their complicity in that. And then looking at Israel and saying, oh, well, you know, Israel is a Jewish supremacist society. And so in a certain sense, they've taken on a particular uh, progressive ethos against systemic racism or anti-Arabism or anti-Palestinianism. And began to cultivate their own sense of identity in opposition to an Israeli society that seems from their eyes simply not, no longer willing to entertain the possibility of a resolution to this conflict and that they see Israel as we can, we can take the language of apartheid out, we can take the language of occupation out, that from their perspective, Israel is a society of domination. It's dominating a group of people who have a national identity, who have a national consciousness, who are asking for rights of self-determination. And so in a certain sense, it, I think just like the new left was a, a, a protest against the old left FDRism of their parents, the Gen Z, we'll call it new anti-Zionism, 
is a critique uh, against the kind of neo-capitalism of the Reagan era. It's just, it's a cycle that's moving because I think that for a lot of these people, it's not just about Israel. It's about capitalism. It's about racism. It's about climate change. It's a, it's a whole way. And capitalism is very tied into it. So Israel uh, like defines itself in a, in, a, in, a, in a proud way as being the startup nation. And a lot of these young progressives are saying, yeah, that's the problem. They're just globalists. Right, they're just basically hyper capital, free market capitalists that are taking advantage of people of color in the global south, and so on, and so on, and so on. So, I, I what I'm trying to say is that it's much broader than the Israel-Palestine issue. That is the issue where it focuses. But a lot of these people, these young people, they are, you know, they're reading Franz Fanon and they're reading critical race theory. They're reading anti-colonialist theory and post-colonialist theory. And when they look at Israel-Palestine, they see a very kind of egregious example of these processes that are moving. And, and, and frankly, you know, people will say, oh yeah, but they don't remember where it comes from. They don't remember the Holocaust. They don't remember 1948. They don't remember the kibbutz movement of the 1950s. And all of that is true, but they don't remember it because they weren't alive then. So you can't, you can't just say, oh, you have to remember what life was like before the Civil War. No, the Civil War's been over for a long time. And I think a lot of these people, from their perspective, the miracle of Israel as coming into existence post-Holocaust just doesn't have the same kind of resonance it does for a previous generation. And a lot of their parents don't understand that. But you can't, you know, you can't give trauma as an inheritance in that way. It just doesn't function that way. We, we have proximate historical memory. We know what we know. We see what we see. We grew up in the world we grew up in. So I think, I think that's at least part of it. Liberal Zionism is in a real crisis now, in, in part because the Israeli state is so breathtakingly illiberal. Obviously, the, the liberal Israeli state was always an illiberal one from a Palestinian perspective, but now that sort of colonial illiberalism I would argue, a sort of ricocheted back into the actual core of Jewish governance and society. But why why did liberal Zionists once have a program for Israel that seemed viable? And was it ever actually viable given its emphasis on 67 as the moment when Israel lost its moral authority? Even if the crisis for liberal Zionism is new, are the roots of that crisis actually old in terms of an inability to grapple not with 67, but 48 or even 17? Right. I think, I think it's, it's first worth stating, at least from my point of view, that liberal Zionism, much of my book, The Assessi of Exile, is a critique of that, that liberal Zionism is an American phenomenon. I don't really think there is a liberal Zionism uh, in Israel. There's a leftist Zionism in Israel, but that's very different than the liberal Zionism in Israel. And the liberal Zionism in Israel, if it wants to basically look at its origin point, I think the origin point of liberal Zionism in Israel is Louis Brandeis. Now, Brandeis wasn't really even talking about a state, but Brandeis was basically making an argument that Americans should be Zionists because Zionism and Americanism are aligned. That there's something about the liberal ethos 
of American society, and we can critique that also, I mean, from another point of view, but the liberal ethos of American society is very much in line with uh, the liberal ethos of, of the early Zionist movement. I'm not convinced that that's necessarily true, but it kind of doesn't matter. That, that's really what gave birth to a particular kind of perspective. And the liberal Zionist perspective, I think you're right. Well, first of all, now it is certainly on the ropes because what does it mean for a person committed to liberalism to support an illiberal nation state project? And I don't, I don't think you can really make an argument or any liberal Zionist cannot make an argument that Israel is a liberal state at this point. I think what becomes more complicated is the desire to, for Israel to go back to some liberal roots, which, as I see it, and as I argue in the book, never really existed. It's really a fabrication of a particular kind of an American Zionist ethos, which allowed Jews to be liberal Americans and Zionists at the same time. And again, this goes back to Michael Waltz's Just and Unjust Wars. Like, why is it liberal for me to be against the Vietnam War and yet liberal for me to justify the Six-Day War and the occupation, right? So in a certain sense, that book is a really interesting intervention into the problem. I think the problem is becoming much, much more difficult. And I think that what's happening is, certainly post-October 7th, is that liberal Zionism itself is becoming a liberal. In that somehow the idea that my liberal views vis-a-vis America do not necessarily have to translate to Israel. So as a friend of mine who's no longer alive wrote on her Facebook page in her political views, right on Israel, left on everything else. That's kind of what liberal Zionism is becoming at this point. Certainly post-October 7th, you see this in a lot of op-eds that are being written by people who are professing liberal Zionism. Or to say, we're no longer talking about two states, we're talking about shrinking the occupation, which is a term that was invented by Micha Goodman, who was an Israeli, who is not a liberal Zionist, but yet has been able to use liberal language to articulate an illiberal Zionist settler project. So his idea of, we have to be better settlers. We have to be better hegemons. We have to treat the people that we're ruling over better. We're not going to give them equality because we can't do that. But we have to make life better for them. That's the shrinking the occupation. That has become the liberal Zionist position on some level. And and this is part of what I critique in, in, in the chapter in the book as liberal Zionism exhausted itself. So in a way, liberal Zionism is going through its own deliberalization in order to remain liberal Zionism. And it's kind of collapsing itself into the illiberal permanence of the occupation. Because certainly post-October 7th, we have no other choice. That's the reality. This is a zero-sum game. If they're going to play a zero-sum game, we have to play a zero-sum game. And so I think a lot of young Jews who grow up with a much more progressive orientation will basically just say, that's all bullshit. Like, I'm not buying that. I I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And I think that's kind of where it is. So in a certain sense, the progressive movement 
is rejecting a liberal Zionist alternative, which they, to some degree, rightly claim is really no longer liberal. Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation by Cory Doctorow. When the tech platforms promised a future of connection, they were lying. The platforms locked us into their systems and made us easy pickings, ripe for extraction. Twitter, Facebook, and other big tech platforms are hard to leave by design. They hold hostage the people we love, the communities that matter to us, the audiences and customers we rely on. We can and we must dismantle them. In the internet con, Cory Doctorow explains how to seize the means of computation by forcing Silicon Valley to do the thing it fears the most, interoperate. Interoperability will tear down the walls between technologies, allowing users to leave platforms, remix their media, and reconfigure their devices without corporate permission. The internet con, how to seize the means of computation, by Cory Doctorow, out now from Verso Books. You write that the neoliberalization of Israel, the notion that it's a so-called startup nation, that it challenges, quote, the very core of Zionism as an ideology of collective Jewish self-determination built on a democratic socialist ethos. And I think it also undermines the idea that this, this basic Zionist foundational Zionist idea that working the land would turn weak diasporic Jews into these muscular Israelis. Because in today's high-tech economy, and with tighter and tighter restrictions on Palestinians and the territories entering Israel to work, it's been Thai or Filipino guest workers doing the farm labor and a significant portion, a surprisingly large portion of the hostages taken by Hamas on October 7th were Thai farm laborers. Where does the neoliberalization of Israel and also kind of like the white collarization fit into this larger politics of far-right settler radicalization that we've been discussing? So this, this idea of startup nation as being both the godsend for Israel that thrust it into becoming a first world economy and the death knell for Zionism really comes from a teacher of mine, Eliezer Schweid at the Hebrew University, who was a very, very strong Zionist thinker and probably the person that influenced me more than any other person on these kinds of issues. His basic critique is that globalization was a kind of perfect alternative for Israel. It had the technology, it had the brain power, it had the education uh, of its population. And it also had the kibbutzim, which were collective movements which could produce and manufacture these kinds of things, medical technology and computer parts and such like, and things like that very quickly. So it became, it, it was thrust into this, this global world as startup nation. But what Schweid claimed was that it undermined the collective ethos upon which Zionism was founded. Now, it didn't only, he didn't only mean agrarian. He didn't think that Israel had to kind of continue to be an agrarian society and a kind of quasi-third world society. But the fact that 
being an Israeli meant being a part of a national collective project with socialism as its economic ethos, started to basically transform into a neoliberal free market capitalism society where you had the rise of a very, very wealthy class and a poorer class who were now no longer had the socialist safety net that they once had, those people in development towns and immigrants. And of course, Israel was no really, no longer, the Israelis were no longer willing to do that kind of manual labor, whether it's farming or construction. And in the 1970s and 1980s, it was mostly Arabs that were doing that, that were coming in from the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Once that ended in 2000, because of the Second Intifada, then you had all of these foreign workers that were coming into the country that were doing those kinds of things. So in a certain sense, you know, there's nothing new here. This is the capitalization of a country that's moving from a more socialist-oriented country to a more capitalist one. But one of the things that Shvai talks about, and then I'll get to the, to the religious Zionism piece of it, is that once you're being paid by multinational companies, once you're working for Google and Amazon, once you also have an apartment in Paris and Palo Alto and London, you're just not part of the project as much anymore. Your money is not coming in from Israel itself. You're being paid by Google in California or you're being paid by some other company. So you're just not attached to it. You may live there and send your kids to school there, but you become more of a citizen of the world in some way. And the, the byproduct of that is that the secular Zionist ideology, which was so deeply embedded in Israel in its early days, it dissipated. And it be, there was this ideological uh, vacuum that was filled by religious Zionism. Because religious Zionism does have a very strong land-based ideology. It does have a very strong collectivist ideology. It does have a very strong ideology of Israel as not a nation among nations, but a different kind of nation. So settler religious Zionist ideology filled a vacuum that was created in part by globalization and now has come to, to really dominate Israeli culture. And I don't mean only among religious Zionists. I mean, even among secular Jews, the idea of somehow tradition, the idea of religion, the, the idea that, that somehow there's, there's something that's unique and distinctive about the Jewish religion, even if it's, if, if it's not lived out in, a, in an orthodox way. And you see that, for example, in a lot of popular music, like a lot of popular music now is dominated by religious Jews. I mean, Ishai Rebo is the classic example, right? Ishai Rebo is a fascinating cultural figure in that he's he's a, a Orthodox Jew singing about Orthodox religious things. If you listen to his music, he doesn't sound that much different than people that you would have heard in Tel Aviv 20 years ago, but he's not a secular Israeli from Tel Aviv thinking about chasing girls, right? He's a He's a keeper-wearing Orthodox Jew that's writing about, you know, Avat Hashem or love of God. It's fascinating that the way in which religion is making its way into Israeli secular culture and transforming it, I think in large part because of the cultural consequences of globalization. Wow, that's really fascinating. Today, anti-Zionists, including Jewish anti-Zionists, 
are constantly defamed as giving cover to anti-Semites or being anti-Semites by organizations like the Anti-Defamation League or just earlier this week by the U.S. House of Representatives. And Jewish anti-Zionists have been declared to be kapos or or no longer even Jewish. I think it was a Jerusalem Post uh, op-ed that essentially excommunicated anti-Zionist Jews or, or Jewish critics of Israel. And it's interesting that we're experiencing this huge concerted effort to clamp down on and chill pro-Palestinian speech, and that a major part of that has been this unprecedented effort to delegitimize Jewish critics of Israel in particular. The ADL and others have long tried to equate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. I think it was it was in 1974 that the ADL put out a book called The New Anti-Semitism that described anti-Zionism as a form of anti-Semitism. But it does seem like we've entered a new moment in terms of the 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 hyperbolic and sometimes just absurdist nature of these allegations as as Jerry Nadler no no great friend of the Palestinian cause pointed out on the floor of the house earlier this week this resolution is declaring that Satmar Hasids are anti-semites what do you make of the way that anti-semitism is being weaponized in this quixotic but ever more intense effort to preempt criticism of Israel? And and what do you make of the way that it's being particularly weaponized against this really substantial number of young left-wing anti-Zionist Jews? Because my hypothesis is that it is about just the brazen and sort of indefensible awfulness of Israel's violence. And that's one reason it all has to be turned up to 11. But I think it's also related specifically to the substantial Jewishness of the Palestinian solidarity movement, like an attempt to deny and disavow the very obvious Jewishness of Palestine solidarity and anti-Zionist milieus in the United States? That's, it's a great question. And um, in his new book, The Palestine Question, Jeffrey Levin locates the first instantiation of the claim of anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism in 1937. It's fascinating, right? Pre-state. So you already saw that there was something brewing early on. It obviously doesn't take the same kind of, uh, it doesn't reach the same kind of volume as it does when Jeffrey Greenblatt of the ADL says anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, full stop, uh, just recently. And as you saw the battles around the IHRA anti-Semitism document, which kind of moves in that direction versus the Jerusalem document, which kind of resists that and the battles that are going on about these documents about how do you define anti-Semitism. So yes, I think that we're moving into, and Hannah Arendt talks about this in, in her article to Save the Jewish Homeland, where she says that Zionist hegemony is a very dangerous thing. And she's talking about it from her experience of hypernationalism in Europe. When you have one ideology that attains a hegemony over all other kinds of ideologies, you enter into a realm that, if it follows that down the road, turns into fascism. Now, I'm not making the claim about Zionism and fascism. I'm just saying that Arendt was very, very disturbed. She claimed that one of the problems with the establishment of the state was that it was going to invalidate non- and anti-Zionism perspectives, which eventually it did, only it took a few more decades than Arendt thought that it would. 
I think it's it's it is a, it's an it, to my mind it's an egregious weaponization of anti-Semitism that is now focused on the left. That book, the new anti-Semitism, is really about the anti-Semitism of the left, which is really the anti-Semitism of the Muslim world. The anti-Semitism of white Christian America. Okay, we know what that is, right? Here's the interesting rub. The Jewish anti-Zionism, who is a Hebrew-speaking, Talmud-learning, you know, kosher-eating Jew, who sees Israel at, or who sees Zionism as a danger to the ethos of Judaism's focus on justice and equality, the way I understand it, that person is an anti-Semite, right? But the Christian evangelical who is pro-Israel and has no love for the Jews. That person is not an anti-Semite. So, so, you know, some 30-year-old Jewish woman who's in JVP is an anti-Semite and John Hagee is not. That's where we've come to, right? And so in a certain sense, what determines whether you are or you are for the Jews depends upon what your stance on Israel is. So I know it's very hard for people to get their head around, but there are many pro-Israel anti-Semites. And their pro-Israelism is part of their Christian dispensational ideology that Jesus is going to come back, the Jews are going to have a chance to accept him, and if they don't, the earth is going to open up and they're going to fall in. I mean, that's the book of Revelation, right? So that's okay. That's okay. But if you're an anti-Zionist, you are an enemy of the Jews. I think it's it's a it's among the terrible roads I think that Jews have gone down of late. I think this is this is one of the one of the worst because two things. I think it's mistaken. Number one, I think it's a substitution of Zionism for Judaism, and number two, which may be more pragmatic, those young Jews who you. I'm not speaking you, of course, are trying to cut out of the Jewish people, they don't give a shit. <laughs> they don't care. In other words, you have no authority over them. So you want to call them an un-Jew? You don't want to let them into your synagogue? They're saying, we don't want to come to your synagogue, right? And so there's a sense of this real game that's going on that the Jewish establishment or the ADL or whatever is acting as if it matters to these young Jews. They don't care what you think about them or their Jewishness. They're going to set up their own learning centers. They're going to set up their own summer camps. They're going to set up their own, you know, synagogues and chavurot. And screw you. So I don't, you know, at that point, kind of what's accomplished? You're basically just dividing the Jewish people. And you're going to have some Jews who are Jews in good standing on their own account because they're Zionists. And then you could have other Jews who are Jews in good standing because they're anti-Zionists. And so, all right, so maybe they won't marry each other. I don't know what's going to happen at the end, but in a certain sense, what you're, what you're doing with this un-Jew, you're just promoting sectarianism. And of course, the irony, like Jerry Nadler says, I saw there was this great um, like video clip of these Satmar Hasidim holding up like Israel is apartheid, right? You know, dressed with payas and long coats, Israel is apartheid. And there are these then Jews on the sidewalk, I mean, even without not wearing kippah, we'll call them secular Jews that are yelling at them and saying, you're not a Jew. 
<laughs> they just come from the diner having a corned beef sandwich, but they're going to tell the Satmar Hasidim that they're not Jews. That's, that's where the irony just becomes comical, right? And um, in some way, you know, forgetting about the Satmar Hasidim, because they're, they're their own group, although they're not a small group of people. They were just a group of 60,000, 70,000 people that gathered in Keryas Yoel with the Satmar community, basically saying Israel is not the state of the Jewish people. Um, so we're not talking about some small and significant group of people, but sending those aside, I think it's a terrible mistake, and I don't really think anything good is going to come out of it. It's just a kind of throwing down the gauntlet about the intolerance of opposition to, not opposition to the Jewish state writ large, but the opposition to the Jewish state as it presently exists. And... A lot of this is driven by, by Israel itself. I mean, since the 1940s, Israel has been very, very engaged with curating the American Jewish narrative in all kinds of ways. I know, let's say, Jewish summer camps. When I used to work in a Jewish summer camp in Camp Ramah, they used to have, and a lot of the, even the reform summer camps have it. I know that a lot of the conservative and some of the modern orthodoxes, they have every year a mishlachat. They have a group of Israelis who come to the summer camp to kind of like... Zionize the kids, you know, when they run all these kind of programs. I mean, sometimes it's, it's like, I know when I was in the summer camp, they had these things where they would like have these army things where there were the Arabs and the Jews and they were right. It's crazy. It's like, it's like birthright comes to you. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's supposed to be, oh, we want to give Israelis a taste of American Jewish experience. But no, 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 that's not really what's going on. It's particularly unsettling right now to see Germans so eager to decide what and what isn't anti-Semitic, something I plan on doing uh, a short episode on soon. Fascinating. It's fascinating. You know, I wrote an article in Religious Dispatches after October 7th. It was not particularly provocative, but a, a person, a friend of mine who lives in Berlin said, if you had written that in Berlin, you would be arrested. And all I was saying in the article is we really have to see that October 7th didn't fall from the sky that there's a context to it, that there are conditions. Not to say that the Israelis are to blame for it, but to say that something, you know, to explain something is not to justify it. He said to me, if he said that in Germany, he'd be arrested. So yes, there's this hyper, hyper sensitivity. I do wonder and worry that this equation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism along, alongside the actually existing Zionist state's monstrous actions in, in Gaza, that it will or is already fueling actual anti-Semitism. Obviously, nothing Israel does can excuse anti-Semitism, but we have Israel doing these horrific things in the name of all Jews at the same time that pro-Israel figures are telling people who oppose Israel that they are in fact anti-Semites. And it just all seems very dangerous. It, it, it's totally dangerous. I mean, the the the, the fact that the the rise in anti-Semitic acts in the United States is demonstrably the consequences of what, what's happened post-October 7th. You know, the reality of what we're seeing on our computer screens every day, more and more, week by week, um, and as the death toll continues, like what, you know, when I, I have, a, you know, Palestinian friends and... What am I supposed to say to them? I mean, they totally come out absolutely against Hamas and against what happened. But they'll say to me, Shaul, 
tens of thousands of children. You're killing tens of thousands of children. How do you think that that's going to be a solution to anything? I have no answer to that. You know, so I, I think that uh, that that is the reality. So people are saying, well, you know, we can't trust the Hamas health uh, numbers. So, okay, so it's not 16,000, so it's 11,000, so it's 10,000. Like, at what point does it really not matter anymore? I think a real irony here is that groups like JVP saying, saying not in our name, these are the same Jews being accused of essentially being anti-Semitic Jews, are really the ones leading the fight against anti-Semitism in the United States by saying, no, actually, like, we refuse to have Jews be held collectively responsible for Israel's actions because Jew, Judaism is not, I don't know, there's something there about the no, there, the, look, confla- the, the talk, conflation. As we, talk, as we talked about last time, there's, there's a very complicated relationship between anti-Semites and Zionists. And, and um, going back to Europe, we talked about it in terms of Europe, but here too, so... Basically, when the anti-Semite is going to point to the Jew in a street in New York City and saying, you're committing genocide or you're, you know, you know, you're destroying the you know, Palestinian people. And that person is saying, oh, no, it's not, I, I'm an American Jew. I'm not. It's not me. And then Israel in 2018 in the nation state law says Israel is the nation state of the entire Jewish people. In a certain sense, Israel is basically... Israel has actually put into law exactly what the anti-Semites are arguing, that every Jew is complicit in everything Israel does. They have different ways of articulating it, but it's the same structural equation. There's a surreal thing happening where there'll be an article in the newspaper about heightened, purportedly heightened anti-Semitism on campus. And the evidence will often be something like someone yelling free Palestine at a pro-Israel Jewish student and the student felt uncomfortable. And there's a there's a discourse sometimes that the very invocation of Palestinian identity or Palestinian existence is almost implicitly genocidal against Jews. So on the one hand, there's this constant invocation of the possibility of Jewish annihilation, if not, but for Israel. But that Jewish insistence on vulnerability is often brought up alongside an insistence on Jewish supremacy and strength, sometimes including an openly annihilationist strength vis-a-vis Palestinians. So it's a discourse that can normalize ongoing Israeli settlement into the territories between the river and the sea while insisting that the chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is inherently genocidal against Jews as though Palestinian freedom inherently means genocide of Jews. How do you parse ideologically, discursively, Zionism in this moment and maybe in other moments, simultaneously invoking Jewish strength and capacity for violence on the one hand and Jewish weakness and existential vulnerability on the other? I think that is, you know, the way you articulated it is really the crux of the tension that exists with the entire within the entire Zionist project. On the one hand, Jews now have the right and, and, and capability to defend themselves. And on the other hand, Jews are vulnerable. So I'll give you two examples. One example is something that Yitzhak Shamir said and that Netanyahu said as well, which is the borders of Israel are like the gates of Auschwitz. I mean, if you really think about that, 
What that's actually saying by implying that, it's saying that we, we are in Israel in a state of powerlessness the way the Jews were in Auschwitz, which is, which is, which is of course, bizarre, right? And on the other hand, the comparison that some people made between the kibbutzim that were attacked on October 7th and the Warsaw Ghetto. Or all of the kind of comparisons between Hamas and Nazism. Worse than the Nazis. Not just a comparison, but an insistence that Hamas is worse. Yes. So I understand where that's coming from. Like, I understand the sense of trauma and the sense of vulnerability and the sense of humiliation that Israel feels as a result of what happened. But the comparison only really shows the way in which that deep sense of victimization that has been embedded in the Jewish psyche for millennia, and for good reason, still actually exists in a nation state that has a nuclear weapon. And and I'm not saying that even necessarily in a critical vein. That is the tension between those two things. So if you say that a Jew in Tel Aviv is like a Jew in the Warsaw Ghetto, then Zionism has accomplished nothing. It has accomplished nothing. And it would be something I would say that Ben-Gurion would come out strongly against. He precisely wanted to wipe away the psychic victimization of the Jew through sovereignty and through power and through domination. And I think that we see that that's a very, very difficult thing to do. It, you know, again, it's so deeply embedded in the Jewish experience. And of course, some Jews use that as a tool of justification for engaging in certain kinds of behavior that are, you know, behaviors of domination. We have to do it because we are in a perennial existential crisis. Now, I'm not even sure what that means to be in a perennial existential crisis, or certainly for a nation state to see itself as being in a perennial existential crisis, especially when that it's the only country in the region that has a nuclear weapon. Not that it would ever use it, but it certainly has a nuclear weapon. It is one of the most militarized countries in the region that is supported by the, you know, the great world power being the United States. So... It, it does kind of beg the question of where these kinds of things come out. Now, I will say post-October 7th, there's, there was such a deep sense of trauma and fear and really humiliation that this was never supposed to happen. Zionism existed so that this would never happen. So what does it mean that it happened in a Zionist project? And that's something that I think you know, people that care about this issue, people who think about this issue in Israelis are going to have to grapple with for a very long time. There was this surreal moment when sometime in the, the weeks after October 7th, Biden said there's not a Jew in the world who would be safe if there were no Israel or something along those lines, which was remarkable in a variety of ways. One, because Biden is the president of Jews. And two, because things like October 7th, at least on that scale, do not happen, knock on wood, in the United States of America to Jews. 
So it was very remarkable on two levels in its dissonance in terms of the Zionist promise and the the reality that had been exposed. I also think, I mean, I noticed when he said that too, I had the same reaction. I, I also think that the, in a very strong way that the Zionist narrative is basically founded on that very principle. And that Biden is just absorbing a particular kind of Zionism from the 1950s and the 1960s when he was growing up. From watching Paul Newman on the silver screen. Exactly. And watching Paul Newman on the silver screen. That, that in fact, if there was no Israel, world Jewry would be in danger. Now, my response to that is, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. I don't know. I don't want to see the destruction of Israel to find out. But I, I think that to make that assertion as a proclamation and therefore, as a proclamation that one can use to justify certain actions and certain behaviors, what's the evidence for that? I mean, Jews lived for 2,000 years without a state. Now, life wasn't always so good, but it wasn't necessarily as terrible as a lot of historians want to make us believe, but it wasn't so good, and that's true. But it's not that Jews disappeared. It's not that there was ever a sense that there was that the Jewish people were going to disappear or be annihilated. Now, of course, the Holocaust becomes the exception to that. But we have to remember Zionism starts before the Holocaust. The Holocaust doesn't give birth to Zionism. The Holocaust is something that creates the conditions whereby the world says, yes, a Jewish state is necessary. Of course, there's been this Zionist civil war raging within Israel that had reached quite a level of intensity in the months leading up to October 7th. What will happen to those divides now? And and how will they shape the future trajectory of Zionism? Because on, on the one hand, we have these deep ideological conflicts that have fueled the anti-BB protest movement, and those and those will remain. But on the other hand, the so-called democracy movement was always a thoroughly Zionist one, which meant that it perversely could not extend the meaning of the democracy that the protesters were fighting for to include Palestinians subject to apartheid. And then today, we have the vast majority of Israeli society from from center left to right, seemingly united behind various forms of Jewish supremacy and even, especially right now, genocidal eliminationism. And we've discussed this a bit over the past two interviews, but what are the historical ingredients that led to this extreme far-right government. That's a a wild amalgam of fascist, religious, and secular Zionist parties that are difficult for me as an outsider, but still close observer, but it's difficult for me to tell them apart the difference between a Ben Giver and a, and a Smotrich. And then what do you think will happen next within Israeli politics in terms of this divide in this post-October 7th moment when when there's still this this divide pitting two Zionist visions against one another, even as those two camps are united behind this horrific war on Gaza. And then relatedly and lastly, but I think very importantly, to what extent does the answer to that question matter from a Palestinian perspective, given that near uniform support across the Israeli political spectrum for what seems to most observers around the world is perhaps the most grotesque state assault on a civilian population witnessed in perhaps a generation. 
I think that is for a lot of Israelis, especially now, not, not immediately after October 7th, but especially now, certainly some that I speak to, that is really the unanswered question. Can the protest movement, will the protest movement begin again? Will there be the same kind of energy uh, among Israelis who are watching the emergence of a more autocratic system of government by, you know, by minimizing the Supreme Court and by, in a sense, marginalizing liberalism? You're right. I mean, I'll say it this way. The protest movement was not a left-wing protest movement. It was a centrist protest movement. It did not really include the occupation. In fact, for a certain period of time in Kaplan Square, which was the main stage in Tel Aviv, speakers were not allowed to talk about the occupation specifically. And uh, as, a, as a friend from Tel Aviv once told me, is if we bring in the occupation, we lose half the people. Uh, there were anti-occupation what they called neighborhoods within the protest movement. I mean, places where there were people who were holding up Palestinian flags, people that were actually talking about, you know, there's no democracy with with occupation and all of those kinds of things. But it was really a Jew versus Jew movement. And you're right. I mean, they adopted the Israeli flag. It became an Israeli movement. American Jews didn't know what to think about it. Like, should we support the protest? Should we not support the protest? And then some, you know, pundits from Israel came over and said, yeah, you can support the protest. And then they supported the protest. And then if you weren't supporting the protest because it didn't include the occupation, you were being anti-Israel because you weren't supporting the protests. You know, that's the way it kind of fell, fell out, interestingly enough. The Palestinians and the Arabs did not see themselves as part of the protest. This was not their protest. And I think that they were right about that. The question, though, goes back to the other part of the question that you asked, which is how did this right-wing government come to be? Now, of course, parliamentary politics is complicated for someone who was really more, you know, more uh, familiar with the American system. It's a very complicated, messy system, as anyone from Great Britain knows, who gets elected, coalitions, things like that. But the difference between the Israeli government that was elected in November 2022 and the Trump administration is the Trump administration arguably was more of an anomaly. And we can talk about the counties in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Minnesota, and had they gone one way or another way, the election might have been different. The November 2022 elections that brought us this far right-wing government was really the product of the last five elections. It's just that the four elections beforehand, there wasn't enough of a coalition building that would, because of parties that didn't want to talk to each other, having nothing to do with the Arab question, a Victor Lieberman wouldn't sit with Shas, like those kinds of things, right? The secular religious divide. So in a certain sense, it happened, but it had been happening. Now, why... It's a very complicated question as to why. I mean, I think there are a number of reasons. I'll suggest two, and I'm sure people will disagree with me or have other ones. I think back to what we said before about Startup Nation, I think there really isn't a left in Israel anymore. And the re one of the reasons there's no left in Israel is because many of those people have really bought into globalization. They've just checked out of the political culture. And of course, the religious Zionist narrative kind of comes in. And secondly, I know this really sounds... Sounds banal in a way, but I think there's something to it. I think a lot of Israelis, they just got tired of the Arabs. Like, we're just, we're just done. We're tired of the occupation. We're tired of it. We don't want it anymore. We don't like it. You don't really want to be a part of us. We can't really include you. And then you don't want to be a part. So there was that just sense of just, 
I give up. And the, the ideology of religious Zionism, we're kind of waiting in the wings. And we're able to swoop in and say, we have a solution to the problem. Right? Ben Gavir is going to be the national security, you know, he's going to basically make sure that we're going to arrest Palestinians, we're going to take them from the homes, we're going to demolish their, you know, on and on and on. So even though, for example, the pogrom in Hawara, which was horrific, where you have, it's not that you had settlers that were going and liquidating a village, you had the IDF standing by and watching, which is really what a pogrom is. And Israel was horrified by that. Most Israelis were horrified by that. No one was taken into account. No one was arrested. No one was convicted. No one was put in prison. That's the most devastating thing. The fact that you have people that will go and do such a thing, we know that already. But the fact that the government is willing to just basically look the other way and not prosecute and convict people of, of these kinds of crimes, whereas if Palestinians did that to a Jewish settlement, the army would go in and destroy the village. So I, I think that, that a lot of Israelis have become chastened or numb to the kind of dominating culture and have basically come to the conclusion is there's really no other way. There's no other possible way. And any of the optimism that happened in Oslo and any of the optimism that happened after very, you know, Camp David one, when there was this meeting between Egypt and, and Israel and Sadat flew to Jerusalem, like all of those kinds of things, I don't think that's part of the Israeli experience anymore. So I know that Bibi is really hated in Israel by a lot of people. Obviously not enough because he's still the prime minister, but there's a lot, you know, by there's a large contingency of people who really don't like him and who really blame him for October 7th. And I think that's going to come out more and more. But I don't think Bibi's the problem. I think Bibi's the symptom. I think the problem goes much deeper than Bibi because if you, I think if you look at some of the people waiting in the wings, like Gans, for example, or even Lapid, on the question of the Palestinians, there's not that much difference between them and Bibi. There are differences in terms of other things, in terms of economic policy, in terms of judicial policy, and so on. I don't see much of a difference between Gans and Bibi on the question of, uh, of the occupation. But I, I really think that when all is said and done, when the smoke clears, when people start to kind of rebuild their lives, the same problems that existed before October 7th are going to exist after October 7th. I don't think structurally the country will have changed in any significant way. You know, I'm, I'm not a pessimist by nature, but I really don't see a way forward. I think, I think another reason there's almost no left left in Israel is because to be on the left now would so clearly require being an anti-Zionist. And that is a position that an American Jew can occupy a lot more easily, I think, than many Israeli Jews. And I know that some people on the Israeli left listen to this podcast. I know they're out there bravely protesting. I know they're feeling both marginalized within Israel and abandoned by us on the pro-Palestine left abroad. But I do think that this is the key piece of the argument for things like BDS and the need for international pressure because it seems clear that there are no forces within Israeli society 
that can right now meaningfully be play a lead role in putting an end to the present state of things? Certainly not post-October 7th. But I think before that, one of the surprising things that a lot of American Jews discover when they go to Israel is that the people on the left in Israel, this is again before October 7th, are far more left than the American Jewish left. And many of them don't consider themselves Zionists. Post-Zionism is an Israeli phenomenon. It's not an American phenomenon. So I think that, you know, groups like Mats Penn from the 70s, who are coming out against the occupation, literally the third week in June 1967, the war had just ended, and they were, po- they were protesting against the occupation. They were far to the left of, of any group in America at the time. But again, I think October 7th has struck at the heart of Israeli leftism, and I'm not really sure that it actually can survive in the short term. From, from reading your work, we both, I think, support some version of a one-state solution in, in Palestine, Israel, or whatever it will have to be called, a single democratic state of all of its citizens, Jewish and Palestinian, living between the river and the sea. But obviously, I've got to admit that it's hard to imagine such a beautiful thing happening anytime soon, particularly, yeah, given just how intensely uniform the the political reaction seems in Israel. But, but as you write, quote, liberal Zionists have mostly dismissed such ideas as fantasy, but liberal Zionism is no less utopian than progressive one-statism. In other words, this proposed solution might might seem like a wildly utopian one, but what it has going for it is that nothing else is remotely ethical, moral, or workable in the long term. My question is, what sort of resources could Israeli Jews Jews draw upon in their own traditions that might facilitate that happening one day? What can Israeli Jews hold on to? And also American Jews, what can Jews hold on to to help them let go of everything that has to be let go of to let go of the settler colonialism, apartheid, and Jewish supremacy? What can Jews hold on to to let go of all that? I, I don't think, as a point of clarification, I am not, I am not a, a, an advocate of a one-state solution because I don't think it's a solution. I think I am in favor of the recognition of a one-state reality because that's what there actually is, as opposed to a two-state solution which, from my perspective, doesn't exist, and the conditions for it really don't exist. So, and here I'm influenced by the political scientist Ian Lustig. I think basically it's saying that Israel is a one-state reality. From the river to the sea, there is one state, and that state is called the state of Israel. The question really is, what kind of state is it going to be? Is it going to be a democratic state? Is it going to be an ethnocratic state? Is it going to be an apartheid state? Is it going to be a liberal democracy? And all of those options are open. I think putting energy into creating a reality of what is rather than imagining a reality that does not exist is probably a better way of spending our time and resources. Now, in terms of how you get there, 
I mean, there are some really interesting work being done. People like Omri Baum's Haifa Republic. He uses the example of Haifa and the Arab Jewish coexistence in Haifa historically as a kind of a model for a national program. That's one. It's going back to some form of binationalism back in the 20s and 30s when nobody really thought it was possible and really where it wasn't possible then. What would it be to be possible now? You know, in a sense, the argument in the in my book is that the problem is not what kind of Zionism, the problem is Zionism. But that's not an anti-Israel position. That's just saying that Zionism existed, it did its work, it created a state. Why can't we just like put that on the shelf and think of another way outside of the narrative of this is the land of the Jews. And if you really behave yourselves and you act according to the way we want you to, maybe we'll give you a piece of it. Maybe we won't. Maybe to be demilitarized, but we can be militarized. In other words, there's a basic, I think, inherent inequality to the very notion of Zionism that keeps getting progressive or liberal alternatives. It, it just, it's, it's like banging your head against the wall. You just you can't get beyond it because I think that's the project. Now, Again, my, you know, my, my, my suggestion, I'm not a policy person, so I'm not going to sit down and say, okay, this is what we have to do. We have to create this infrastructure and this government. But basically saying that people who live in this state should be equal by dint of citizenship, and they can have their separate religious institutions and secular institutions of identity, and they can run their affairs the way they want to. Certain, I guess I come closest to this notion of a kind of confederacy, where you have two separate entities under one federal system. I think that's probably the most realistic. Now, everyone is, not everyone, a lot of people there say, well, you can't do that because they're, they're the enemy. And yeah, I think both sides see the other as the enemy. And October 7th just like put that into turbo. I'm not sure how you actually lower the volume. I think if we, if we can think about Israel beyond Zionism, and there are people a lot more adept than me that can think about all these things and figure out different ways and structures of how that can work, I think that's a, that's a way to move forward. Otherwise, we're just kind of going around the carousel and we're just going to come back to this moment some other time. Maybe we're not going to be alive anymore. But or, or, on the other hand, Israel will take the route of the U.S. and Australia and destroy everybody. And then the problem is solved. And then Israel has to live with that. And we're living with that legacy. Australia is living with that legacy. Well, Shaul Magid, thank you very, very much for all your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was the second of my two-part interview with Shaul Magid, professor of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College, visiting professor of modern Judaism at Harvard University, where he's senior fellow at the Center for the Study of World Religions, rabbi of the Fire Island Synagogue in Seaview, New York, and the author of the recently published book, The Necessity of Exile, Essays from a Distance. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the profound hypocrisy and inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization lies unveiled before our eyes, turning from its home, where it assumes respectable forms, to the colonies, where it goes naked. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. 
The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and our newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or another such platform, please also rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling other people to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us, and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 